Welcome to Season 1 of Instrumental. I'm your host, Amber Petty. So I thought you were still living in Melbourne. I haven't lived in Melbourne, really. Oh, no, ever? No, never. Well, I was born here. I was born at Brighton Community Hospital. Um, my dad worked for the ABC. He got transferred to the ABC in Sydney when I was five. So both my sisters and my parents still are all living in Melbourne, but I actually have never lived here since I left when I was five years old. But I have strong connections to Melbourne. Yeah. Um, but not pers- not me or my family. My personal family, my wife and kids. Yes. <laughs> I, I, because someone, and maybe it was a mutual friend, someone like Kate or something like that, said something, there was the Brighton primary connection and I went to Brighton primary and I was like, oh, did you? how did I miss you? Because how old are you now? That's a really uh, personal <laughs> question. <laughs> okay, you don't. Yeah. I, I, my, both my sisters went to Brighton primary. Uh-huh. I'm probably older than you. I'm 47. No, same age. I was born in 1971. 17. Uh, 13th of February, though. Okay. But I was born at Brighton Community Hospital. I, I grew up at Laburnum Street in Brighton. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, so did you do any of Brighton Primary? No, but both my sisters oh, went your there. Sisters so did. I left when I was five. I think I was, yeah, I was. I, I moved to Sydney and went and started school. Okay. So I want to get a kind of bit of a sense of you as a little person, mm-hmm. a little pat, before music entered your life, I just I'm 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 really interested to know how a person ends up sort of not only just in music but but doing really well and what was your house? So you had two older sisters. What was your house? Describe your kind of upbringing, your early days. Um, well, my father worked for the ABC. My mum was a ballet teacher. She worked for the ABC originally. Uh, that's how my mother and my father met. My mum was from an arts family. She was the third generation of ballet dancer. She danced with the West Australian Ballet. Um, she finished up when, I guess she was 21. She'd kind of had enough and she moved to Melbourne and started a career in the ABC where she met my father, who was a year older, who had been working. He started in television before television even had started. He was an engineer at the ABC. He did a... Uh, like what an internship that they used to do back then. So she was also a concert pianist. My mother is an amazing pianist. She comes from a real arts family. My father comes from a real working class, struggling Irish Catholic family. He met my mother and thought, well, this is my way to become a more cultured individual. (laughs) I need to try and get my head around this lady. And my mum fell for his charms. And uh, my dad's a real reader and a real, he's a very intelligent guy. He's done, he's been really successful in the arts himself. And so I was, my life was always music lessons, my sister's ballet lessons, music lessons, that kind of real, I guess, kind of a European kind of upbringing in a way, that kind of thing. Um, I wasn't pushed too heavily with the music thing. Both my sisters were. Uh, by the time they got to me, I think that they'd kind of given up. But it was too late. It was like osmosis. That it, There was always kind of an instrument lying around. There was always a piano. My mum was always playing. My sisters kind of moved between flute and violin, piano, and obviously dance, you know. So I guess it was always there. I didn't really pick up. Uh, I had classical guitar lessons when I was in, before I was 10 years old. Um, but then that didn't really, that wasn't something that I was really interested in doing. So I stopped. I took piano lessons for a while. But as I said, my parents weren't really very pushy with me. I thought, I think that they figured that they'd done enough pushing with my sisters and they were just going to let me be who I was going to be as far as that kind of thing went. Yeah. 
So what kind of, like, obviously if music was all around you, that doesn't necessarily mean it's always the music that really, you know, floats your boat at the time. What kind of music, like, do you remember when music, you started to hear certain music, you know, in your childhood that you went, wow, or, or really kind of connected with that excited you? Uh, my parents were big classical music listeners, but they did have Cat Stevens' teeth, the Tiller Man, and I remember out of their record collection, I remember we used to live in a house in Shadford Street in Sydney, and I remember that record uh, was the only thing that connected with me at all. So I've got to say that, I, you know, I still do really appreciate that record. Mm. Grinspoon have, in fact, covered Where, Where Do The Children Play way, way back, wow. like in the first couple of years of our, of our career. And, um, yeah, so I guess that was the first popular music that ever kind of turned my ears up. It wasn't until I was kind of in high school where, you know, I was obviously, in, I had older siblings, yeah. so whatever they were into was influencing me. What were they into? One of my older sisters was into this, she went through like a punk phase where she was into, you know, the, the Sex Pistols, things yeah, like that. The you know, Clash. The Clash, exactly. And then my other sister was into Duran Duran. <laughs> yeah, I used to catch her, like, in back in the days where you had, like, the phone in the lounge room and then one in the kitchen, and I'd pick up the phone in the kitchen and she'd be talking to one of her friends at school pretending to be Simon Le Bon. <laughs> the other one was pretending to be Nick Rhodes. It was really messed up stuff. So, but I was never into Duran Duran. I, I was I probably the rock and roll stuff stuck with me a little bit more. I really did like the Clash and the Sex Pistols and those records that my older sister was bringing home. Yeah, for sure. But as it kind of moved through, my uh, my middle sister, the one that was into Duran Duran, started getting really good taste in gothic music, the Sisters of Mercy and Bauhaus and stuff like that, which was really kind of around the household a lot. But it wasn't until she started bringing home records by, I guess, psychobilly bands like the Meteors uh, that I was like, wow, I'd like to try and emulate some of this stuff because it's really great guitar work, the Stray Cats, things like that. They were early kind of guitar, when I first picked up the guitar, musical influences for me for sure. So what was your process like as you're – yeah, so you're sort of starting to formulate your own taste in music or what inspires you and, you know, I guess unlike – I mean, I'm, I'm sure with many music – there's obviously with every musician that goes on to, to make it their livelihood, there are the sort of the joining the dots of the musical sort of uh, backgrounds and, and what kind of leads them further and further into going, I'm going to do something with this. And that really is the difference between people that dabble – people that I mean there's not many people that don't love music but there's a lot of people that sit and kind of aspire you know and that's the beautiful thing about music I think you know not everyone has to go on to do something with it because it can be part of your life in in whatever way but as you're probably getting more into I guess what you like what is what are you then doing and how old are you when you're starting to sort of spend I guess more time personal time dabbling or are you then sort of going oh I should sort of write my own music or you know what what's the sort of what's the next little step I think the next little step has probably been something that's always been the things that have moved me forward in my musical career it's being meeting someone yeah who's inspired me to to do more yeah so tell me about those people well the first of all I guess I, I was probably 13, maybe 13, 
or possibly 14, I was in year seven or year eight. No, I was in year eight or year nine in high school and I had a friend whose father was a really accomplished uh, session musician in Sydney. Like he was the one of these guys that used to play at the basement, you know, the oh, yeah. old basement in Sydney and he'd like, you know, we'd go along and sit on the steps outside and his brother, this, the, which was also a son of this session musician, was in a seminal Sydney punk band called Jawbone Green. So the other brother, his name was Dean, who was my age, wanted was a bass. He wanted to play the bass, and I was like, "Well, I want to play guitar." And he was like, "Well, what are you into?" And I was like, "Well, I'm kind of into this psychabilly kind of meteors, stray catsy kind of rockabilly-ish, clashy kind of rock and roll." And he was like, "Well, so am I." So we'd walk home from school together. Um, we'd known each other. We actually were in primary school together, but we weren't friends. But this was like the music kind of brought us together. So we'd walk home from school before we even had instruments and would just um, kind of go, go talk about music, go to my house or his house, listen to music, play along to songs just like mm. air drumming or air guitaring and stuff. <laughs> but we, this is what we're going to do. All right, you're going to be a bass player, I'm going to be a guitar player. Convinced our parents, which was a, a, an easy one for him, a little bit more difficult for me, to buy me a guitar for him to buy a bass. And then he was like, I know this other guy. His name was Rory. He's, his dad's a lawyer, so he's got a drum kit. Like, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Got plenty of money. <laughs> wow. Okay. So he had a drum kit. And then we just started to play music together. Funnily enough, I'm still friends with uh, Dean, and he has cassette tapes of those early... Uh, jams with uh, the drummer being just because we're playing at someone's house drumming on a guitar case and us learning those old songs. So that was, I'll always look back at, at no matter where I am kind of in my musical career, is that was that was ground zero. Yeah. Really. And have you, when you listen back to those tapes, what, what do you hear? I mean, obviously, you know, it's early days of learning, yeah. but what do you hear? Do you, do you look back and... And kind of go, wow, I, I, I did. I mean, because you obviously you had lessons, so you, you you were more trained than probably a lot of other musicians, you know, quite a few musicians out there that just sort of plot along. Um, but what do you listen back and, and hear in terms of, I guess, your talent or where you're at? Um, well, it, it was very, everything was very rudimentary. Like, I remember one of the songs that's on the tape is a, a song called The Way I Walk by the Cramps, and it's just G to E, two really simple chords, and I am struggling. I mean, <laughs> I, I, to be honest with you, I'd had music lessons, but I'd, it was the first time that I'd really picked up the guitar and decided to be serious about it, you know, we all had. But, you know, I hear very high voices, but I hear pretty okay taste in music. Yeah. I think the songs that we were doing, it was pretty cool stuff because we had these older siblings, yeah. both him and I, and him in particular, who were really kind of opening up our minds to what at the time I think was pretty kind of left of centre cool music. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the stuff is pretty, is as I said, is pretty rudimentary. Yeah. But uh, I guess when I hear it, I hear it, there's definitely a lot of enthusiasm there. Yeah. We did our first gig um, not long after that. We did a backyard party. Yeah, we in, we introduced another guitarist, a guy named Mike, who I'm still friends with. Um, so there were two guitars, Dean on bass and Rory on drums, and we did our first gig. I think we're in 
at the end of year nine and a backyard party, and I'm pretty wow. sure there's a tape floating around <laughs> of that somewhere too. You know, back in those days, it was just like someone had a cassette player. Yeah, always that, that, taping that, everything. Taping everything, exactly. So, I mean, you know, when I was growing up, 2SM was the big radio station yes. in Sydney. And so you could just, like, they'd say, coming up, so you'd tape a song yes. and listen to it back. You know, my sisters were probably, they were older than me, so they were more into doing that stuff. But, yeah, it was just another way of kind of not having, it was another way of not having to go down to the record store and, mm. and buy a record, I guess, is <laughs> the original piracy was mm. the was the tape deck. Mm. So this series is very much about kind of like the love stories, you know, of, of successful Australian musicians and predominantly one instrument and obviously yours was guitar you're obviously surrounded by so many different you know so much different music and your mum being a classical pianist and and what have you what was it about the guitar you know the, the process of playing the sound everything that was really kind of your one um I think that I you know I tossed up for a long time um whether I wanted to be a bass player actually uh. or a guitar player originally but um, because I met my friend who wanted to be a bass player, it was set in stone that I was going to be a guitarist. But um, once I kind of got my hands around it, I've never really played anything else, you know. And um, I was a big ACDC fan when I was growing up. Um, it was uh, Beatbox, which was a TV show on the ABC on Saturday mornings. I guess today's version of Rage would play like... Um, let There Be Rock was a big one, which was just like this extreme kind of guitar sound. And, I mean, it was just totally all-encompassing, and, and I loved it. And as soon as I kind of got my first distortion pedal, you know, it was like <laughs> such a huge day in my life. I think that, I don't know, I don't know if I chose the guitar or kind of the, the guitar chose mm. me in a way. like Or Dean chose it for you. Or, or he chose it for me, <laughs> exactly, or my friend chose it for me. But, um... Yeah, I don't know. Like, it's just one of those things that, that, yeah, I was kind of, I was definitely drawn to it. And then it just kind of stayed. It left my life at certain phases of my life. I remember when I kind of, when I first left school, I was like, well, you know, what am I going to do with my life? Like, I'd, I'd love to be a musician, but, you know, is it a pipe dream? Mm. And should I be doing something else? But then it all just came back around once again, really through meeting people and them saying, well, you know, this is your thing, mm. you should do this, you know, in the same way that Dean did. So, I mean, you were reasonably young, I guess, when you started having success. What was the next kind of person or moment that, that happened that perhaps transitioned you from going, oh, she was, a bit, I better get a job or mm. hang on, maybe there is something in this? Like, tell us the sort of lead up into Grinspoon. Um, I was living in Lismore. I was uh, pretending to go to university pretty much up there. <laughs> I was playing in a band with Joe, who's the bass yeah. player in Grinspoon. And we were do, kind of doing whatever it took to make ends meet. And one of the things that we used to do was we used to hold it like a, just a, a jam night at a local pub. I think it was on a Monday night. And anyway, Phil turned up one night with Chris and we were just kind of like, well, who are these guys, you know? And then, I don't know, we did, Phil and I had an instant kind of connection as far as music goes. And uh, he was, yeah, up until that point in time, I hadn't done a lot of writing, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But he was all about writing your own songs and, and, and doing something original. And that kind of, 
I mean, that relationship started very strictly, quickly and became strong very quickly. He basically moved into my house straight away. How old were you guys? Uh, 23. I was 23. He was 17. Oh, baby. So we basically, our lounge room turned into a jam room. There was a drum kit in the corner and I, we were living another guy with another guy named Pete Boone and he was an ex-Sydney kind of band guy, singer, piano player. So it was the three of us basically just playing music 24-7. We wrote a lot of songs around there. We wrote songs about each other. We wrote songs about Pete that we still play now. <laughs> Rude. <laughs> yeah, not really, but it's just popular. There's a popular song about Pete out there, that's for sure. Um, and, yeah, that was just, that was a really, like, you know, early 20s, I guess, uh, diving headfirst into kind of songwriting. I'd probably come to it a bit later, you know. We'd written so We'd mucked around writing songs when I was at school and, and things like that, but nothing too seriously. But then it was, we really started to study the craft and I used to, you know, listen to guitarist songwriters and how they went about, you know, crafting songs and, mm. and just, you know, also looking more about into stage performance and how mm. people looked with their guitar. It became probably a lot more, I don't know, um, narcissistic about the way I looked when I held the guitar and things like that. It was a big transition period from just, you know, been playing guitar a long time, 10 years, really, from 13 kind of to, to 23. But now it's like, I guess all that, all the, the, all that work that I put in, you know, learning other people's songs in the bedroom, you know, like always having a guitar around when I was a kid. This is the first time it's like, oh, actually, I can do something. We can do yeah. something here. There's something, there's possibilities that I hadn't really imagined yeah. up until that point in time. Um, yeah, so, I mean, that, that is that is a thing. It's not literally just sitting around, you know, playing guitar, waiting for someone to sort of walk in the front door and say, hey, you should do this properly, you know, obvious, <laughs> obviously. And I can imagine, I mean, I, I don't know Phil very well, but, you know, I, I can imagine he, you know, he, he he's a big character and, you know, he's an amazing front person. Um, but it's interesting that you say that you start studying stage performance and, and you know, and, and, and that kind of thing. I, I was lucky enough to interview Stevie Nicks um, quite a few years ago. And, I mean, for someone that, I mean, of her success and talent, um, you know, I was just in Adelaide and, you know, it was just a, a phone interview and she was so generous with her detail and information. But it also made me realise, like, she's such an incredible creative that can paint a picture, a full, detailed, rich picture just by her words because even the way she she talked about fashion, which is kind of cool for a, a girl that loves loves her fashion, just, you know, her inspirations in those early days. But she was talking about her and I, I think it was um, Mick, or it was either Mick or Lindsay, but she was talking about how they were both 17 and they were set standing side of stage. They must have been one of the earlier bands that were playing before Janis Joplin. Um, and, um, well, actually, Janis, she, she talked about Janis Joplin and, and Jimi Hendrix, but Janis Joplin, for her, she just, what she got out of her was just the way she got on stage and just demanded. It's like, I'm here, we're doing this, listen to me, Um do you have any of those kind of younger sort of like early day moments when I guess you were having access to maybe being side of stage or even just being at a gig and just kind of like anyone in particular that you sort of really kind of studied mm. them in particular that, that influenced you? Um, wow. 
I mean, going to early big day outs and things like that and seeing bands and because, you know, I guess in a way my access to music was a little bit more like the current generation where it was music videos and mm. things like that, you know, and going to see, I remember going to see The Song Remains the Same, like the Led Zeppelin movie in a midnight session at George Street Cinemas at one point in time of my life with Jimmy Page in the in the dragon uh, jumpsuit, you know, <laughs> that kind of stuff. Yeah. That used to, like, totally blow me away. Uh, as I got older, people, like, when we first did shows with UMI, like watching Tim Rogers play music, which is which was a real life. Now, I remember one night we went, we were in L.A. and we went and saw them play. I think we were, it was when we first got signed to Universal over in the U.S. and we were living in L.A. And they were playing at this club called Spaceland, which I think is still there in Silver Lake. And they came on stage, I think that they were, they were touring their kind of fourth record and they just came out and it was just blistering, man. Like it was so good. I remember it like it was yesterday, the first song. I remember the opening riffs and I remember it, that being a point in time where I was like, wow, like this is an incredible band. Like these guys are, you know, absolutely awe-inspiring when they're at their at their peak, you know what I mean? So it's not always kind of the big, more famous, spectacular mm. acts that you see that, 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 that inspire you. I mean, I saw Guns N' Roses in 1989 at the Entertainment Center where there were fights and there were, I mean, that was just crazy. And that was, I mean, yeah, I was 18, 17. I was with Rory. I was with the, with the drummer from my first high school band. And yeah, I mean, that was, that was, something that will always stick in my mind. I think with music and, and, and seeing people perform, it's like, like I was saying before, it's a, a little bit of osmosis. You, you take bits on, you don't even know that you're doing it mm. sometimes. And it's the same with songwriting. You know, sometimes I'll write a song and I'll go, oh, geez, that sounds like that, but I haven't done it intentionally. It's just mm. drawing on, I guess, drawing on influences, the things that you see and things that you hear. Sorry to interrupt, but I just wanted to have a little chat about my sponsors because as a broadcaster who's worked on FM and Talkback Radio and now, of course, in my favourite place, which is podcasting, you have to realise that the more seasoned you become, you really deserve good quality equipment to work with and headphones to radio people, podcasters, singers and musicians become one of those things that you really want to feel good about. And I recently acquired the MT8 Yamaha headphones and I've become very excited about the fact that even after all these years, when you become a bit complacent, that these headphones have taken my love of sound to a real new level. And I asked my audio engineer, Luke James, to check them out and give them a try and he reckons he loves them because of their crisp sounds solid build quality and he thinks as I do that they're super comfortable to wear. I'm actually wearing them right now and you can check them out for yourself at bettermusic.com.au forward slash mt8 and now back to my guest. I don't listen to nearly as much music as what I used to now, I remember back then, you know, teens, early 20s, mid-20s, even to my 30s, devouring music. Anything that was new, I knew what it was about. Mm. I've become a little slack in my... You know, it's probably Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've become a little slack. We still try and listen to music every morning over breakfast, even now before the day gets going and all that kind of stuff. We still try and... You know, listen to the radio and we still listen to Triple J. I haven't moved to ABC FM yet, like many of my <laughs> friends have. 
triple jail and listen to that shit. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess it's just one of those things. So at what point, so at what point just doing this kind of joining the dots, like at, at what point do you, I mean, who, who, I guess who is the person that's driving you or is it collective in terms of going, okay, we're actually going for a record deal now. We've got songs that are good enough. Um, how are you edging towards that kind of like moment in your life, like towards making that series and actually gunning for a record label? And how did how did that come about? Because that's that's the missing link for obviously mm. most of, of yeah. the world. Um, in a way, we were very lucky. Like we got picked up by the Triple J Unearthed campaign quite early on, but um, that was no. Uh, pathway to success, believe me. What it did get us to do, so we say 19, 1995, beginning of 1995, I met Phil and this is when this first kind of, you know, living in a house together, pre obviously unearthed and starting to write songs and we go out to a studio and we record a, a cassette tape, which is what we submitted to Triple J when we won Unearth, with two songs on it. Phil and I argued about which song was the best one and you know, all that kind of stuff. Were and they? It was the Sick Fest, which was the song, and there was another one called Throw. And um, I think that Phil wanted Throw to be the A-side, but I think I won that battle. That was a battle that I won, thankfully. <laughs> anyway, um, once that happened, that was like a whirlwind six weeks, really, mm. and then you can it's quite easy to get forgotten about. But we were determined not to be forgotten about, so... We basically came down to Sydney. We went and talked to every booking agent, um, you know, everyone. No one really wanted to have too much to do with us. We didn't have a booking agent. But we just, we managed to get a tour. We managed to get a tour with the Screaming Jets. I can't even remember how we did that because we didn't have an agent. We had a kind of a manager, a guy who'd heard us on this Triple J thing that was kind of interested in in helping us out, but in a very casual, no documents kind of a way. And so we just hit the road and then we'd go wherever we could possibly go. I remember we had this kind of pencil case which had all our money in it, that Joe was the only person that was allowed to look after because <laughs> no one could be trusted with it. We were in either <laughs> Phil's girlfriend's mum's Tarago. She had a Tarago, which was really great because we could just use that. She was a really lovely lady. She worked for the for Centrelink, so she kept us all on the doll too, which was another really great thing about her. Thank you, June, if you're listening. June was a lovely lady. I think she probably still does work there. Um, so we just hit the road, and then we picked up this tour with the Screaming Jets, and that pencil case started getting fuller and fuller. I mean, we're lucky we're living in Lismore. We live cheap, you know what I mean? We're living in a small country town. We didn't have big city expenses. We could just hit the road, and, you know, we all had, you know, we all had partners at the time who were very... I guess, you know, all had jobs and who were looking after us in a lot of ways. I've got to be honest with you, they were. And then once the the actual, the, the pencil case was full of enough money, we went back to a guy named Phil McKellar who worked at the ABC and asked him if he would be willing to record an EP for us. Um, we went into Triple J in Sydney and recorded it there because they've got a really great studio and because he worked at the ABC, we had access to it. 
On the back of that, we met a guy named Justin Van Storm who became our manager because he loved that EP. On the back of him becoming our manager, he had a connection with a guy named Paul Krieger who was the head of MCA at the time, which later became Universal. And they signed us to a development deal through a small label of theirs called Grudge Records, which was back in those days, all the big labels were getting little independent labels to sign bands that may or may not make it and funnel them a little bit of Michael Jackson money or whatever and, <laughs> and see, if, see if they could do, do anything with it. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. And that's what happened to us. And then we went, we went home, and this was 1997. We recorded our debut record on the cheap, like really on the cheap. We recorded at a local studio called Rocking Horse, which is up in the hills behind, in between Lismore and Byron Bay. Uh, we had a big party while we were there, pretty much. Uh, it was just a big party, the whole thing. But we managed to knock out all these songs with Phil once again. And that album, just something about it. Uh, it was at the right place at the right time. I think we ended up selling 250,000 copies of that record, of something that didn't cost us very much to make. Mm. So we are very, very, very happy with that development. On the back of that, that got assigned to Universal in the US. Well, we went over to LA and did a showcases, which is what you did in those days. You get in front of industry people and you play. And because we already had a deal with Universal in Australia, we got picked up by Universal in New York, moved to New York, got signed by the agency, which was the biggest agency group in, in the world at the time. I think they still are. Uh, went on tour with everyone from Anthrax to all the big kind of rock and roll bands at the time in the US and... That was the 90s for me. Mm. We stopped touring the US in about 2000. We'd had enough. Um, it just all got a bit too hard for us. And, um, you know, we have, there are some certain regrets there that we didn't stick it out and go the whole way. But at the time, everyone was burnt out five years of kind of everything. And there were obviously other stuff involved, like, you know, drugs and, and everything, mm. you know. Mm. So it was, it was a tough time. It had been an amazing five years. But that's hopefully that's joined the dots. <laughs> yeah, and there's some serious dots there. I mean, you know, I, I guess what I kind of picked up. I mean, obviously, not everyone gets that kind of ride. But what I think is interesting that you said there is, is I do believe that you know the right people, the right time, the right music, the right product, whatever it is, really does. Fate plays into it a lot. Absolutely. And I think fate. Um, Fate, destiny, you know, all of those things uh, a lot of people don't understand. Um, or a lot of people, I think, also their issues get in the way of <clears throat> what could be gliding towards more success than, than the, you know, than they obtain. And having worked, obviously, in the music industry before, I see a, I've seen a lot of bands get in, get in their own way where the music and the product and the stage performance is there, but they get in, they get in the way. And so you've had huge success. One little question I want to ask before I kind of, you know, we're obviously sort of coming towards the end, but because um, I think this would be a, a thing for a lot of people, and I think, you know, I was talking about my brother before, uh, you know, he loves playing little pub gigs and he'll always have music in his life and he'll always have a band that he wants to be part of. But I don't know that, you know, that's all very well to love what you do, but then to end up having to do, and you're doing it at the moment with Groove, Groove in the Moo, but doing stages that big with other, um, you know, massive, massive bands, and, you know, I'm sure there's comparisons that bands make from one band to the next going, oh, God, you know, we don't want to go before them because they're amazing or whatever it is. 
Um, what, what is, has that ever been kind of intimidating to you or early days? I mean, it's probably not now, but intimidating to get up in front of like 20, 30 or more thousand people all screaming their head off. Like that's quite intense. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, we played with a lot of our heroes over the years. Like we've done some biggest gigs. So we've done some big shows. I mean, yeah, it's funny. Back in the day when we were in the States, we used to do these things called radio shows, which mm. were basically modern-day payola. So we'd go to, like, Minneapolis, and you'd honestly play to 100,000 people, and there would be Queen on the bill oh with, yeah, like crazy, crazy stuff. Oh. Yeah. Oh, and no. When, all these people are coming and doing it, and, you know, when there were times there was Offspring, there was all these kind of amazing bands, Paula Cole. I don't know why I remember that, but I just remember watching her play at one of these radio shows. She was huge at the time. The theme from that TV show, they'll, they'll never remember what it was. Anyway, I don't want to wait. What's it called? Uh, Dawson's Creek. <laughs> theme from Dawson's Nasty. Creek. That's right. So Paula Cole, big deal. Um, yeah, I don't know. Like still now, like at the moment, we're playing with some great bands like Portugal the Man on Groove in the Moo. And obviously Paul Kelly goes on after us mm. and, you know, legend. Um, you can never see a musician. Well, I'm a big believer that you never meet anyone that you can't learn something from, mm. they're good or bad. Mm. And uh, the same goes with musicians. Like, you know, there's you can always learn something from mm. the way someone goes about their business being a muso. Mm. My biggest advice was always to people because obviously I get asked a lot, mm. like, mm. what do you, what would you say to people who, you know, are starting out in a band and mm. or just want to write music? I would always say to them, just perseverance is the most important thing. And if you're in a band, try and get into a band with people that you think that you can, you can, you would have them as part of your family. Mm -hmm. You don't always have to like the members of your mm -hmm. family, mm -hmm. but they're always there. So just, you know, with, with our band, we're the same four guys. We've learned how to compromise with each other. We've learned how to love, learned how to hate, learned how to tolerate. You know, but it's always been for the one reason that we always love playing music together. Mm. We've always enjoyed what we do. Mm. And we always see that it's a reason to keep going. Mm. We just had like a five-year break pretty much where we didn't know what we were going to do. And then our, our management came back to us and said, do you want to do a 20th anniversary about that debut album that we were talking about? And we were like, we kind of like, we all kind of called each other individually and was like, what do you think? What do you think? And it was kind of, it was a big decision at the time, but when we got into the room with each other and we all put on our instruments and started playing the songs, it felt really good. It felt really natural and it was something that was obviously developed over a long period of time, but we allowed it to develop, you know. You just don't give up. And you have obviously, after huge success, but, you know, going through every kind of gamut that, a, you know, a successful artist and, and band have done, and then you, you've obviously taken a break. You've done obviously plenty of things and you've written the children's book and you've been, become a father and you've become a husband and all of that sort of stuff. And you said, you know, you maybe dropped out of the loop musically on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, uh, and we won't say because <laughs> there's just a gap we need. Yeah. We, just, we just need, I think as you get older, you just need a little bit of a breather. A little bit of That's a breather. it. That's but right. which bit of, and, and obviously, you know, part of my world for, a, you know, a, a few years was being in the music industry and, and, you know, working for a label. And I did the same like, because I was always at gigs, you know, and you and it becomes, I know it sounds terrible, but it becomes a chore because, you know, there's many nights when you just need to be recharging your batteries. 
and there's a new band in town and, you know, and you have to go and see them. And so I think for me I, I needed a massive breather on just going to see shows and what have you. But I'm finding, you know, even with wanting to do this, you know, series is that I'm now feeling a thirst for music again. Um, what's it been like um, because you have become the father and there's been, you know, and the, and the husband and all of those sort of things and, 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 and not the day-to-day kind of rock star sort of thing. So you are sitting alone just as the, the average man for, for a, you know, a period of time. What's it been like for you to step back into the shoes of, of your old life in a way, from stage to getting back with the guys to the whole kind of, you know, kaleidoscope of the music scene? What's it been like? Um, it's been it's been a real experience. I guess in that in that window where we where we had a break, um, I I still played music with friends. You know where I live. I still had a little band that I used to play around with. I got a studio. I do some writing, do some film stuff. Like just do what you do to try and not have to go and get a real job. Um, but when we kind of came back in. I guess we didn't know what it was going to be like. The landscape had changed so much musically, you know what I mean? Where there were, you know, I look at it when we're on this festival at the moment, like it's a case in point really. I kind of back in the in the old kind of festival days, both here and, you know, and overseas, you kind of walk around, you'd know everyone and it was a bit of a kind of a family from the crew guys upwards, you know, to the promotions people, to the to everyone. But now I kind of walk out there and I go to catering and I kind of look around and I feel like a foreign agent. It's just like <laughs> my, these are not my people. Oh, yeah. And because it's a young man's game in a way. Yeah. But, you know, we've still got Paul Kelly. They put us together. They put our dressing room next to each other and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> like, it's from these guys they down there. Have a generation yeah. of chat. <laughs> That's right. But I'm still friends with, like, you know, there's a man called Flight Facilities. I share, yes. my, I share my studio in, in Byron with, with one of the guys from Flight Facilities. So we've got some friends there. I mean, we had an amazing tour. Our tour last year, the Guide to Better Living tour, was the biggest tour we'd done within Australia ever. Wow. So most successful tour we'd done. There was huge appetite for nostalgia. Yes. Huge appetite for nostalgic T-shirts as well by our hunters. Wow. Yeah. That's so it was awesome. great. Uh, it felt really good to get back. And I think that, you know, we'll pro- after Groove and the Moose finished, we'll, we'll probably just ha- take a little break. Everyone's got a lot of other stuff that they're doing. Phil's doing a lot of stage stuff and... Yeah. And Joe's in production these days. He works on big music festivals and stuff like that. So everyone's got other life stuff to get on with. But I think in 12 months' time, we'll probably all get back together and say, what can we celebrate this time? <laughs> well, what about your little girl? Has she been to see you uh, on a big on a big stage? Um, she's kind of gets there and is more interested in what's on the rider because our rider is like a, a <laughs> children's party. There's lollies. <laughs> So she's like, we really want to go to a gig, Dad. I'm like, why? You guys have got lollies. So, yes. <laughs> and I have a son too now, which will be good. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah, your little so, baby. Yeah, little baby. So, yeah, it'll be good fun. I'm collecting all these guitars to hand down to him. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. All right. Well, on, on the on the finishing note, given that this is about the love stories with guitar, <laughs> what's, a, what's a little... Okay, when, when he's old enough to have a little chat to, to take in what Daddy's actually saying, and you've plonked the guitar in front of him, 
What, what are you going to say? What's a couple of words you can say to introduce this love of the, love of your <laughs> life to another love of your life? Yeah. Well, it's funny. I've tried to get my daughter, who's almost five, to, and you know, my mother says to me, she goes, "Well, you know, she's turning five soon. That's when I started playing piano, so she should probably start then too." And I'm like, "Okay, mum," but I'm actually struggling to get her. She's got a ukulele. She's more into <laughs> the moves. <laughs> the actual uh, fingerboard yeah. at the moment. So I think with Ted, I'll probably wait a little bit longer. Yeah. I think that I'll keep him probably until... More strategic. Yeah, I think so. I think, like, <laughs> just just chill, buddy. But when it's time, I think that um, I'll probably just, you know, hopefully I've held on to some of my nicer instruments that I've got and I might just say, mate, this one's yours and, yeah. and um, do with it what you will. You know, do with it what you will. It's probably got a few more songs left in it if you want to try and write them. So, yeah, that's hopefully that's the plan, you know. Obviously, I've got aspirations for my children, as you do, but um, <laughs> you've got to be prepared that it doesn't always work out the way for you rejection. might. rejection. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> might not necessarily work out the way you want to. But I call my guitar collection like my superannuation. I've been collecting guitars for a long time and I've got a, I've got a, a shed full of, of various kind of instruments. So... They'll be for my kids, I guess. You know what I mean. Hope you've got a big lock on that door. I do, I do, and I'm 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 not a hoarder in any shape in my life, other than mm. guitars and mm. kind of musical bits and pieces. So I've got I do have a lock up. I try and use as much of it as I possibly can, but that's theirs, and they can they, if they're going to want to sell it or hock it, whatever. But um, that's for them. Well, I tell you what, if you're a music thief and you had a big <laughs> and you had a big truck, you'd be backing it into Byron Bay, yeah. wouldn't you? Be going, it's not Byron Bay. It's not Byron Bay. Ah, that's where you are, aren't you? Yes, I am. Oh, okay, right, okay. Yes, yes. Every musician that lives in Byron Bay is going. Hang on, I know that guy. I don't know where he drives. I don't know where he parks his car. Totally. There'd be some good instruments tucked in amongst the vegetation in in Byron Bay. Well, there are. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I um, my daughter is in the same class as Bernard Fanning's son. Ah. Yeah, me and Bernie are drop-off. He's got a studio there too. Uh, Pete Murray, I used to have a studio with Pete. Pete's up there as well. It's ah. a breeding ground for musos, a lot of musos there. Yeah, so it's a great place to... Um, for the kids to grow up and to be involved in that. Yeah, yeah we're doing... A, I'm doing a school fundraiser. Um, oh, my God. Coming up soon with myself and Andrew Stockdale from Wolf Mother, John Farris from In Excess because oh his kids are at the God. school as well, myself and Bernie. But we're going to do cheesy 70s LA rock covers, like more than a feel. It's going to be like Boogie Nights. Oh, my God, that would be the best gig ever. <laughs> yeah, it should be a lot of fun. Oh. Well, that um yes, all right. Well, I'm I'm, I'm already starting to visualise real estate in Byron. I need to make a move up there. Um, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. And um, yeah, I hope people get inspired to to pick up an instrument and you know not overthink it. Just go with it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. you enjoyed this episode i want to thank yamaha music australia for getting on board and supporting this series please visit au.yamaha.com forward slash podcast to find out more about new products and promotions and if you'd like to help us spread the musical love it would be great if you could subscribe to our series via itunes and leave us a review if you feel inclined to hear more podcasts from me you can head to amberpetty.com.au.